We're going to take a few minutes this morning. We won't take very long, but we're going to take, and we're going to begin chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 4. So go ahead and open your Bibles and turn there. And as you do, remember, this is a story uh, that, that is, is uh, an amazing narrative of, a, of a, an older pastor who's, who's in prison, uh, who's under tremendous persecution, the threat and the certainty of death at some point for his faith. Uh, he's been through a lot. Paul has been uh, shipwrecked. He's been beaten many times with 39 lashes. He was stoned, you know, and left for dead, uh, drug outside of town, and then came back in and kept preaching. He's had a, a full life. He's planted churches, raised up elders, and he's still ministering. He's still active, all right? And this is young Timothy, one of those young men that he brought along with him and invested his life in, and now he's placed Timothy as one of the pastors in this church in Ephesus, and the church is full of problems, completely. And Timothy wants to leave. He wants to quit. He wants to get out. So the purpose of this letter is for Paul to remind Timothy of who he is in Christ, remind him of his call, remind him to stay, and remind him to fight for the gospel and fight for the truth because everything matters in this story is the glory of God and the gospel. And so he's, that's the purpose of the letter. Now, check this out. Paul is in a situation in his life where he can't go anywhere. I mean, he can't leave prison. He, he's not free to travel to Ephesus. He has very few freedoms at all. His life is incredibly limited. He's, he's in bondage. He has to do what his captors tell him to do. And yet, what does he do with the life that he has? He makes the absolute most of it for the glory of God and for the edification of the saints and for the building up of young people around him. Let me put it to you this way. We're all getting older, fast. And old age is not pleasant. The writer of Ecclesiastes calls it the evil days when they come. And we all realize that as the older we get, the less we're able to do. We lose a certain bit of our, of our independence and our freedom. And at, at beginning, it's just a little bit here and there. And then if, if we live long enough on this earth, for most of us, it accelerates continually and considerably to the point that we all know, some of you are dealing with your aged parents and grandparents right now. Some of you are the aged parents and grandparents. When the kids come to you and say, you're going to have to take the keys away. You're not going to be able to drive anymore. You're going to have to, you're not going to be able to live alone anymore. You can't, you can't cook. You, you can't, if you fall, what would happen? And you lose your independence and you lose those things that you cherished. And, and so what happens when that takes place? Well, I mean, it's, it's altogether possible that you can turn bitter and cantankerous and resentful and all of those things, but use Paul, okay? Use him as your model because he has joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul is content in whatever condition he's in. Paul is so happy in Jesus, even when he's in prison, he takes the, 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 what he's able to do in prison against his will, and listen, rather than turning in on himself and thinking only about what he can't do, I can't leave here, I can't travel, I can't do these things, he simply says, you know what I can do here? I can pray. And he says, remember, we talked later, he said, I pray without ceasing. I mean, Paul is in that prison, and he goes, great, this is perfect for me. I'm away from all distractions, right? 
so I can just pray, and I can write letters, and I can care for people. My goodness, dear ones, when you're aged or, or something happens in your life and you, you limit your, you're limited in what you can do, use what you have for the glory of God and the edification of others, and God will bring you joy and contentment even in the most dire circumstances. One of Paul's real keys to happiness is Paul never focuses on himself. He's always looking at the glory of God and the story of redemption and how he can help others, particularly through praying and encouraging. And that's what he does to young Timothy through all of this. So in chapter 4, he's going to get incredibly specific here about what's going on in the church in Ephesus, and he is very clear about it. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences have been seared. Wow, there's a lot in that verse. There's a lot in those two verses. First of all, Paul makes it clear that this is coming from the Holy Spirit. I mean, this, what I'm about to tell you is something that comes from God himself and the latter times. First of all, what does he mean by latter times? Does he mean like he thinks Jesus is going to come back before next Tuesday? No, what he's talking about, when we talk about latter times in the Scripture, it's that time between Jesus' first coming, all right, and his second coming. All of that is considered the latter times. So, That was the latter times in the first century. It's the latter times today. And until Jesus returns again, we'll be in what the Scripture calls these latter times. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit has made it clear that in these latter times, some will depart from their faith. Now, what does that mean to depart from their faith, right? We hear that sometimes. Now, we're Baptists, and we've always heard, you know, once saved, always saved. That's probably not a particularly healthy thing to quote because that can bring us a real false sense of security in our salvation. It isn't once saved, always saved, in the sense that, well, I walked an aisle, I signed a card, I was baptized, I said a prayer, therefore, that's my get-out-of-hell-free card. What it means is, once you've been truly regenerate, once Jesus has done in your heart that which you cannot do, and he has called you his own, you cannot lose that. Look at what? John, in his little letter, talks about in, in 1 John chapter 2 and in verse, I believe it's 18 here. Children, he says, the last hour, that means these latter days, and as you've heard that the Antichrist, those, the one who is against Christ is coming, but even now many who are against Christ have come. Listen to what he says in verse 19 of 1 John chapter 2, for those of you who are interested in this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. This is what he says, talking about those who were with us. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that we might make it clear that none of them belong to us. We read that again. He's talking about those who have left the faith. They went out from us, but they didn't belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. If we're truly converted, you'll not lose your salvation. And and that's it's not just a 
It's not just a play on words. It's not saying, you know, this is our orthodoxy is better than somebody else's orthodoxy. It's not that at all. It's saying, here's what it means. This is why I believe in eternal security, all right? If there's something I can do to cause myself to lose my salvation, then there's something I did to cause myself to be saved in the first place. And that's damning. And we're going to find out why really quickly here. Paul said, you are saved by grace through faith. The New Testament, Paul says in the New Testament, you are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is what? Not, say it with me, of yourselves, but a gift of God. Say that with me. Not of yourselves, but a gift of God. Even the faith. You say, well, I responded in faith. Yes, you did. But your faith was a gift of God. And if you can lose your salvation, then you did something to earn your salvation. Check this out. This is important. And if you earned your salvation, it's not going to get you to heaven. Because Jesus said, all of your righteousness is like a pile of dirty laundry. I got to hurry with this. You remember in Luke 18, when there are two men that go to the temple to pray, there is a Pharisee. And every young Hebrew mother would hope that her son would grow up and look and act and live and speak and eat and talk and pray like a Pharisee. You wanted him to be that kind of person. He wore the right clothes. He said the right things. He prayed the right prayers. He fasted at the right time. Remember that. And then also, in that story, there came one that was the lowest rung of the social ladder, the tax collector who was considered corrupt and sin. The last thing you'd want your child to be is a tax collector, not only because it was a corrupt job, but check this out. It was a job that collaborated with the occupying force of the Romans. It would be like in France during the Second World War if your child was a collaborator with the Nazis. That's what being a tax collector was like. Now, get those two pictures in your mind. And then quickly, let's go back to chapter 4, and we read what he says. This is a teaching of demons. This is not light stuff. He says in verse 2, through their hypocrisy of lies whose consciences have been seared. Again, if you go back and remember we talked a few weeks ago as we were beginning this, Paul said one of the reasons, Timothy, one of the reasons you stay here and preach is so that people will have a good conscience. Here he says that false teaching brings a seared conscience. You know what a seared conscience is? A seared conscience is where you can sin and disobey and be disobedient and not care a whit about it. That's a dangerous place to be. If you mourn over your sin, if you grieve over your sin, if you're weighted down by the oppression that you've sinned, that's a glorious place to be. If you can habitually sin not feel anything about it, you have a seared conscience, and that's a dangerous place to be. It's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to become so numb to your sin that you don't even care about it anymore. And look at verse 3, what he says. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from food that God created to be received with true gratitude by those who believe and know God. For everything, verse 4, created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Here's what he's saying. Now listen, 
is so powerful, so important. He's talking here about legalism. The biggest challenge we have in Baptist life is legalism. I mean, you're not likely to walk into a Baptist church, particularly a Southern Baptist church or Independent Baptist church or a Bible Baptist church. You're not likely to walk into one of those and hear somebody open God's Word and say, you know, folks, this morning, most of this Word just isn't true. There's just little parts of it that might give us a little advice about how to live and how to walk happily among the flowers and the trees. And, but most of it, we're just going to most of it's old and outdated. We're going to uncouple ourselves from it. We're not going to be burdened by all that harsh talk. And we're just kind of, you know, whatever you want to believe in your heart about God is okay. We do not take this word literally true. I, you're not going to go to many Baptist churches where you're going to hear that. But you're going to go to a lot of Baptist churches where people are going to add things to the Scripture. And they're going to say, now look, yeah, it's Jesus and he died and he rose, and that's what you have faith in. But listen, you also need to do this. You also need to do that. You also need to be like this. That's what's happening. Satan is getting these people to add things that aren't necessary for salvation. That's legalism. That's because that, listen, that causes us to depend on our own righteousness, and it causes us to be proud of our own righteousness, not the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I grew up in a very conservative Baptist preacher's home in the 1960s. Some of you, I'm going to tell you this stuff, and you're going to think I grew up in a cult. Others of you are going to go, I get it. I was there. We couldn't have a deck of cards in our home. I couldn't play ball on Sunday. Certainly couldn't wash the car on Sunday. And until we moved to Kansas City, we didn't ever eat out on Sunday because we didn't want to make somebody else work. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds of keeping the Sabbath. I'm not doing that. I'm just telling you that, that as I grew up, there were many things layered on there that, that were not in the Scripture. The Bible doesn't tell me I can't have a deck of playing cards in my house. Bible tells me I have to honor the Sabbath. Hey, I can stay home and not eat out, but I can still dishonor the Sabbath by my attitude, my heart. You get what I'm saying? You know where I'm going with this, all right? And we can lay legalism, and legalism is said, I have to do, look, there are two ways to destroy the gospel. You take away from it. You say, it's not true. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. We don't really have to confess our sins. We're all going to get to some kind of nirvana eventually anyway. That's, but you can but if, 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 if Satan can't get you to take away from the gospel, then he'll get you to add unnecessary things to the gospel. And what happens with that is then you compare yourself to others. You go, well, I'm better than them because I don't do X, Y, and Z. Or I'm better than them because I do these things. I was a preacher's kid. And I think a lot of times preachers' kids, we can go one way or the other. We can just like become really rebellious or we can become <laughs> the other way and nobody wants to be around us. And I was some, for part of my teenage years, I was kind of the other way. I kind of felt like it was my job in the youth group to help the youth minister make sure that all the youth behaved properly. <laughs> you know, 
And so we had these little, we had these spiritual growth notebooks we were supposed to fill out each week, and I'd work real hard to fill mine out, and I couldn't wait to come in on Sunday night because I knew, amen, I knew I was going to have more pages filled out than all the other youths, and that made me feel really good. It did. Oh, not good about Jesus, good about me, all right? Or I knew sometimes they'd listen to music that I wouldn't listen to. They'd go to movies that I wouldn't go to. And I began to become prideful about who I am. And you add things. to the, And that's what Paul's talking about here. Look, the Bible does not forbid marriage, for goodness sakes. There were some in this church who said you shouldn't marry. The Bible's all about marriage. It's God's idea. The Bible begins with the marriage in the Garden of Eden. Jesus' first miracle is at the marriage and wedding feast in Canaan, and the Bible ends with the marriage at the wedding feast of the Lamb. God's all about marriage. And so here to say you can't marry, I mean, is clearly adding something that's not there or foods that are forbidden. Now, here's the deal. The people in this church in, in Ephesus were, fell under basically two groups, all right? They were former Jews who spent their whole life, their whole existence was a checklist of rules. And if they weren't Jews and they were from some Gentile religion who also had all these checklists of rules. So here they are in this following Jesus and there's no checklist of rules. Check this out. Because Jesus has kept every rule for us. So we don't have to. Now, Buckle up. I don't mean that's a license to sin. The Apostle Paul said, grace is not a license to sin. But when you realize how much he's done for you, oh, this is important. Your motivation to have a clear conscience is your love for him, not your love for yourself and all that you're going to accomplish for him. That's legalism. And so Paul here is talking in chapter 4 about the damning effects of legalism, and it comes from Satan. Now, you may not think it comes from Satan because you think, well, you know what? When, when, when my dear parents said we couldn't have playing cards in the house, they were trying to build a hedge around us so that we wouldn't sin. I guess if I start playing cards, next thing you know, I'm going to the boats and I'm gambling at nine years old all my money away. I guess that's... I don't know. I shouldn't say that. Some of you may not play cards, but nonetheless, I get what they were trying to do, all right? But again, it's, 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 I mean, I grew up understanding that Christians don't play cards. So when I saw Christians who played cards, I would look at them and go, hmm, you're just not at the same level that my family is. Really? Oh, you're at a different level. I'll pray for you. That's sinful. There's nothing in the Bible about playing cards. Stuff in the Bible about gambling and stewardship, but not about playing cards. Look, I, I got I to hurry. I could spend too much time on that. So let's go back to Luke 18 and the story of the Pharisee and the collaborator with the Roman government. Pharisee comes in, and he has covered all the bases. His righteousness is on display He's never picked up a deck of playing cards in his life, all right? He's never gone to a movie. He's never listened, you know, when I was a kid, everybody was listening to Frampton Came Alive, you know? I didn't have that. I had all the Christian music, all right? 
Never listened to any of that. He's never done any of those things. So he can walk into that temple knowing confidently that of everybody else in the temple, he's kept more rules than anybody. He's avoided more sin than anybody. And then he can look over at this dirty, filthy collaborator with the Romans. And he can even say to God, grateful that I'm not like him. That is what legalism does to us. Not grateful for my Savior, grateful for myself that I'm not like those people. Look, it is so much in our nature to look at the world and hate it and hate the way people act, hate the way they dress, hate the way they talk. That's exactly what the Pharisee did. But the the collaborator, the tax collector comes in and he just beats on his chest. He doesn't look at anybody but himself and he says, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. Now, don't lose sight of this. Jesus said, that man, the tax collector, the collaborator, went away justified and righteous. The Pharisee went away unjustified and unrighteous. You know the difference? Unless the Pharisee repented of his sin, the Pharisee is in hell today and will be in hell for all eternity. Jesus says more about hell than anybody in the Bible. You may not like it. You may not want to talk about it. It may not fit your worldview and your orthodoxy, but Jesus talks about it. He even describes it in the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, he's pretty clear about it. And to listen, to be unjustified is not a small deal. It means you're an object of God's wrath for all eternity. I don't know about you, but the God who spoke this universe into being, every molecule of every gas cloud in all the universe and holds them in place by his mighty power, I do not want to be an object of his holy wrath for all eternity. It's a big deal. Likewise. Likewise. That collaborator, that, fair, that, that, that tax collector, when he repented, all the righteousness that would soon be given to Jesus was conferred upon him, and he was made righteous. And today, he's an object of God's pleasure and delight for all of eternity. For you see, if you depend on your own righteousness for your salvation, you're not going to make it. And that's what legalism does. Well, I, I have to believe in Jesus, but I also have to, in this case, they were saying, you can't marry, you have to stay away from certain foods, and you're adding to the gospel. And here's what you're saying. You're saying Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not enough. And that's blasphemy. Once you accept his sacrifice, once he's regenerated your heart, you're you're not going to be perfect. We talk about justification. At that moment that you're saved, you're made right, you're made just, you'll never be an object of God's wrath. You'll always be an object of his love. But until we get to heaven, we're not really cleaned up. We're in a process of sanctification. That's why I can have bad days and bad hours and still fall back into sin. I shouldn't say fall back into sin, run back into sin. I don't fall into it. I run into it. But hopefully, if I'm truly regenerate, then my conscience is not seared, and I can't stay in that state because I find no ultimate happiness in that state. And the momentary alleviation of my 
my, my problems that, that that sin may have given me soon overwhelms me with realizing I need to confess that and repent of it. I want to be right again with Jesus. I love him more than I love my sin. John Piper said, the way you defeat sin, I'll just end with this. The way you defeat sin, it's not by putting all kinds of rules in your life and making sure there are things you do and don't do. The way you defeat sin is to pursue a superior pleasure, and that's Jesus. And at that point, you won't want to sin, not because you've got a list of rules and you're trying to make yourself better than everybody else, but because you love him so very much. You want to be like him.